Hey folks, this is Michael, and welcome to Tatter. Before we get started, I just want to say two things. First, unless anyone on Tatter says that they are speaking on behalf of any particular organization or group, you should assume that each person speaks for themselves and themselves alone. I always want to point that out to avoid misunderstanding. The second thing that I want to say is thank you. Thanks to each of you who offers financial support for Tatter through Patreon, but more generally, whether you do that or not, thanks for listening to this podcast. It means a lot to me. With all that said, let's get started. Here's Tatter. I'll get you the case, but the price has got to go up. If it's going to be amateur night, I want $100,000. I want it up front. I want it in a bank account. I want another 100000 when you get the case. As you might have recognized, that was the voice of Robert De Niro, specifically in the 1998 John Frankenheimer action film, Ronin. In that scene, De Niro's character Sam is frustrated. He's a part of a team of mercenaries hired to retrieve a briefcase, but the person who hired them refuses to say what's in the case, whether its contents might be explosive, whether it will be handcuffed to someone's wrist, or more generally, what obstacles and risks they'll face in retrieving it. In the face of such uncertainty, Sam insists on extra compensation. In effect, Sam is insisting on hazard pay. Hazard pay has been in the news recently as the COVID-19 pandemic continues. In a variety of organizations, so-called essential or frontline workers and people arguing on their behalf have demanded added pay for them to compensate those workers for the risks they face when they go to work in person. In higher education, where I work, the same is true. From the University of Texas to the small college where I teach in Maine, people have made such demands for custodial staff, for example. But what are the conditions under which it makes sense to provide hazard pay? What other kinds of compensation might also make sense? How might race and ethnicity matter, if at all? These are the kinds of questions I recently discussed with Doug McConnell. McConnell is a research fellow at the Oxford Uhiro Center for Practical Ethics at the University of Oxford. He holds a PhD in philosophy from Macquarie University in Sydney, and one of his most recent publications is about hazard pay during epidemics. He and I recently discussed the ideas in that paper and also related issues. I now share a conversation in this episode, which is titled, Hazardous Conditions. So, every superhero has an origin story, and uh, each philosopher also has an origin story. Uh, so, I'm curious, what is your origin story as, uh, as a philosopher? Yeah, I like this idea of origin stories for philosophers. I mean, I, th- I think some of them are super villains as well, you know. But, <laughs> uh, and I, actually, I I can draw on a classic trope for my uh, backstory, my origin story. So it was the result of an evil experiment in a chemistry laboratory. Uh, I was doing a chemistry degree, and we had to do. Um, afternoons would be these long experiments and one I was in this paper it was um 
chemical process technology or something invigorating like that. And one of the experiments was we had like a bed of sand that was wet and we just had to measure how quickly that would dry as you blew air over the top of it. And I was doing that for four hours and I thought, there's got to be something better than this. <laughs> well, you and I, you and I uh, have had parallel experiences because um, when I did a summer research experience as an undergraduate, um, uh, I was working in a lab. I will not, uh, in, in order to protect the innocent, I will not give the name of the researcher. Uh, but I was working in a laboratory with um, uh, a behaviorist uh, psychologist who did pigeon research. And so uh, every morning for about four hours, I would uh, go to the lab and I would uh, retrieve each pigeon uh, from the cage in which uh, it lived. And I had to carry them down a hallway to a different room to run them in the operant conditioning chambers. And so the the carrying method that the lab used, which I doubt uh, that would be, I doubt it would be approved of by people for the ethical treatment of animals, they had these very large plastic um, beer mugs with a little hole cut out in the bottom for the pigeon's face. And so we would stuff the pigeon uh, into the mug, which which pressed its wings against its body so that it couldn't fly away. So I would have to catch the pigeons by hand, um, put them in the mugs, carry them down the hallway, put them into the operant conditioning chamber, type a few uh, commands into uh, the computer, and then just sit for 30 minutes and read uh, and wait for it to actually run them. And it was some of the most boring work ever. And I thought, that is not what I want to do in my life. So uh, so as I tell students, um, summer research experiences can be valuable, even if it's horrible, because by process of elimination, it's helping you narrow down your options. You learn about yourself. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So I learned about you when I came across uh, your paper, uh, Compensation and Hazard Pay for Key Workers During an Epidemic, an Argument from Analogy, uh, co-authored uh, with uh, Dominic Wilkinson. And one of my questions is, what drew you to that? topic? Uh, was it simply its contemporary relevance, or is there more to that? Uh, it was primarily the contemporary relevance. So uh, so my job, I'm, I'm doing practical ethics. I work uh, somewhat in the field of medical ethics, so I've been looking at related kind of issues. Uh, and here we were in lockdown, it was particularly at the, the beginning, you know, let's take, put our minds back and what was happening, where were we kind of March, April or whatever, and, you know, there was no space to think about anything else, you know, it was just yeah. Yeah. coronavirus, coronavirus, and um, so I was working from home already, and, and so I was, I was staying across a lot of these issues, and there'd been a few calls in the British media for hazard pay and for compensation for key workers or um, public healthcare workers and so it was just through following that that I got interested in it and I found I was intrigued by the situation with the military because it turned out they had all these very specific forms of hazard pay or kind of not necessarily hazard but it can also just be for burdens that you you have for unpleasant work yeah so that's so interesting like they have it all they have it all marked out exactly what work results in what money. And I thought, wow, that's 
it's kind of all set out there for the military. Um, that, that gave me something really interesting to work from. And so it kind of, so I was, I was working in the area and then I, I found some way to get my teeth into it uh, without being, you know, I'm not, I'm not an expert by any means on no fault compensation or, or hazard pay. Actually, I hadn't been working on those things, but by making an argument from analogy uh, that kind of put me on slightly safer footing. So I could just say, well, let's just assume that these things are justified in the military case. And now let's just kind of run the analogy to see whether it would also apply to healthcare workers or key workers. And and now we're, come, we're coming up to this, this is where we're going, I guess, as well. Like we're now looking at um, educational, the educational workforce and, yeah, well, let's not get ahead of ourselves, but that's, uh, but you, yeah. you can, you can see, you can start to wonder, oh, does the analogy continue to hold or, or not? Well, and, and before we, uh, go to the educational setting, although I want to go there soon because that's my primary interest, one of the things that I want to, uh, get a better handle on in the, uh, application of your argument to the context you do examine uh, it seems to me that in thinking about what it is that workers would be compensated for under either no-fault compensation or hazard pay, as I read your paper, it seemed to me that you were implying three specific uh, conditions of work that might warrant compensation, but I want to make sure that I'm right about that. Uh, first, it would uh, one potential uh, condition that might be compensated for is the emotional distress uh, that is associated with the uncertainty. Um, uh, and, but then apart from that, there is compensation for the physical and emotional distress associated with what I would call uh, the central harm. So so getting COVID-19 is going to actually produce physical and emotional distress for which a worker might uh, reasonably uh, demand compensation. But even if they don't ever get COVID-19, they have this sort of sword of Damocles hanging over their head. And so there's this uncertainty that itself can cause emotional distress. And so maybe that's something that would warrant compensation. But then also at the end of the paper, you talk about uh, what I would characterize as inconvenience. So having to put on uh, PPE gear, uh, personal protective gear uh, that might be uncom- might be physically uncomfortable, um, uh, perhaps uh, having to go in uh, for frequent uh, testing. Uh, so there's additional inconvenience. So you've got uh, the uncertainty and the emotional distress that comes with that, the distress that comes from actually potentially getting COVID-19, and then inconvenience. Uh, are, am I right that those are the three things uh, or would you endorse that sort of unpacking of those uh, those three features, or am I wrong about any of those, or am I missing something? No, so that, yeah, so that's... Right. So those three things are the things that are being compensated for by hazard pay and no-fault compensation. But uh, the harm itself, so if you actually get harmed, uh, and now we're we're going to try and compensate you for that, that's what usually what the no-fault compensation scheme will do. That's for actual harms. And... They, they, they tend to be relatively serious harms as well. So, um, 
So no, the no-fault compensation scheme covers those things. The hazard pay covers the other two things. So um, just the risk of being harmed, that is distressing. Uh, you know, if you're getting shot at or, you know, that's the equivalent in the military case. You're actually in field of combat. You're on deployment. It's stressful. Um, and and then the, the burden, these other kind of inconveniences of, very uncomfortable work. Um, so in the military case, you know, the, sometimes it's just like wearing heavy equipment or working in really high temperatures. Uh, sometimes it's, you know, moving body parts around. I mean, it's quite specific. It says, you know, if you're moving uncoffined body parts. I mean, it's like, yeah, like, yeah that's, a, that's a bad day's work. I don't want to be moving around uh, body parts. Oh, my God. Like, that, you know, so, so you can see that there's a, uh, so you could say forms of psychological distress, you could maybe put them. Uh, but I think the, so the important thing is uh, hazard pay is quite low. So let's say you're moving around, you're doing some of this unpleasant work. Uh, yeah, it's a bit stressful. You get your hazard pay. But then you develop uh, PTSD uh, subsequent to the fact. And this is, you know, this is... Um, much more serious diagnosable problem. And let's say we can causally link it to your experience. Uh, Now, because you've suffered, you're now suffering much more significantly as a result of your work. Now the no-fault compensation scheme might be activated to compensate for that much more serious harm. So so the no-fault compensation scheme tends to be kind of in recognition that some people will be much more seriously harmed than others as a result of doing this work. Uh, And we kind of will keep that money in reserve to particularly compensate those who, no fault of their own, and in this case, no fault of anyone else, really. I mean, so we can come to that, but it was basically an accident that will happen to some people as a result of doing this work. And, it's kind of unfair that that happens to some and not others. So the rest of us can gather around, get the money. And so, so I guess the other kind of thing to keep in the background here is if you're usually a no fault compensation scheme is run by the government, that would be the most common case. And so it is drawing on taxpayer money. Um, and, and, and just, and just to clarify, as I understand from the paper, uh, uh, the, so the claimant, need not, as you put it, need not prove that the harm was caused by a negligent party. But am I right that uh, there is still a need to prove that the harm was caused by the by the work? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So in the military case, if you, like if you, if you're in a car accident while you're off duty in your home country, you can't draw on your, the no-fault compensation that's made available for the military. It, it would have to happen on the training ground or uh, an active service that you can, you can draw on. Uh, in the medical situation, the infectious disease situation, this is a little bit tricky because it's like, well, where did you contract right. <laughs> that disease? Uh, and so it kind of, so you move into a slightly more uncertain space. But if there's reason to think that you'll be more, likely to be exposed in your workplace than outside, then that already starts to give you a reason in favour. 
yeah and particularly if it's if it's if it's much higher and then you might also think well we might end up compensating some people even though they contracted the disease in their home environment but that's it's probably better to make that mistake than the opposite which is to not compensate those who were right. infected through their work uh that would be the usual way of thinking about that how to deal with that kind of um, uncertainty Now, uh, I was just uh, looking at a report from the uh, Economic uh, Policy Institute where they surveyed uh, U.S. workers uh, uh, during the current uh, pandemic. And they found that in their sample, and I don't know how representative the sample was, but in their sample, uh, approximately 30 percent reported receiving um, some form of hazard pay. Um, But they noted that uh, 50% reported being concerned about bringing the coronavirus home to their families. And that was an example of uh, the kind of evidence that they cited as uh, suggesting that even though uh, from their perspective, from the EPI's perspective, uh, it's a good thing that 30% rather than zero were receiving hazard pay, as they put it, that was evidence that the pay was not being uh, allocated in proportion to the risk uh, experienced by the workers. Now. As a psychologist and as one who uh, thinks a lot about uh, errors and biases and reasoning, I was struck by the EPI's apparent equating of perceived risk with actual risk. And so I wanted to think with you uh, about what you think should drive uh, hazard pay when it's justified, uh, particularly in cases where uh, workers' assessments of risk are biased. And they could be biased in either direction. They could overestimate risk, or you can imagine that the workers might actually underestimate uh, the risk uh, that they face. And so I wonder if you think that um, perceived risk should factor into hazard pay allocation, and if so, how, or should it be based solely upon other factors such as uh, actuarial uh, assessments of risk? Yeah, my, so the, the way I was thinking about it, uh, although I haven't thought a lot about this particular uh, dimension uh, is that it should be based on actual risk. And partly it would be, then there's also a way of signaling to the worker the real risk, uh, if, if this is done properly. Um, yeah. Uh, that, I, I think I'd go for that. I guess I, one reason I'd kind of go for that is I'd, I don't know if you want to design your system around inaccurate assessments of risk that would kind of that would bother me a bit that you you have to that there'd be some obligation on the employer to pay more hazard pay because their employees were under a delusion and um, saying that yeah i mean i see a reason like if, if your workforce is really stressed right even if they're um, kind of wrong about that right it's still stress that they're that they're actually undergoing um so that does create a little you know that does create a bit of a problem especially especially if as we as we were discussing earlier part of what hazard pay is for is to compensate for the 
distress associated with uh, the uncertainty, e- even yeah. if it's based on an inaccurate assessment of, 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 the, of the risk. Yeah, yeah. I still would resist that. Yeah, my, 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 <laughs> my, my intuition is to resist that. Um, uh, I guess uh, there's a sense in which I feel like, well, the worker is creating their own stress and it's, uh, it's not the employer's job to fix that. Um, but, of course, I also don't really want to put it all on the employee because right. chances are that their, their stress has been strengthened by the media. Uh, yep. The things they're seeing, you know, it's, um, so, I mean, that kind of speaks to I mean, a lot of when we're thinking about these, these problems and we tend to look at the interaction between the employer and the employee, the context is also important. Um, how come we're in this situation? Um, yeah. Do we have to be in this situation? Are there things that the state could be doing? Um, the media landscape could look different. Uh, a bunch of different things we could change that would adjust the situation so that it wouldn't necessarily just be between how can we, say, deliver education or healthcare um, while maintaining employer-employee relations um, yeah. because the nature of those relations is somewhat dependent on the, the overall social context. And I, I will say that uh, I, I, I have similar intuitions. I, I also, at least my default tendency is uh, to resist the idea that uh, perceived risks rather than actual risks would drive the allocation of hazard pay. But I'm at a college that has chosen to uh, uh, invite students for in-person instruction uh, this fall. And I have seen on public uh, email threads pained messages uh, from uh, staff colleagues um, regarding their concerns, their fear, uh, say in the case of custodial workers, uh, their fears of uh, uh, potentially contracting COVID-19 and taking it home to their families because of student uh, uh, misbehavior, but, but student misbehavior in the context of a situation we're in because the college decided to go in person. Uh, and so I, I, I'm, I'm sympathetic uh, to those concerns, even though it uh, that is, even if, and I don't know this to be the case, but even if uh, some of those concerns are based on inflated assess- assessments of risk, I'm sympathetic uh, to, I mean, it's, it's, it's inhum- it would be inhumane to read those emails and not feel for the, for the people who are expressing that fear. But, but as I think about where we are as a college, um, we are uh, an institution that is fortunate enough to have the resources to uh, test students uh, twice a week and to uh, test um, um, employees at least uh, once a week. And it's mandatory testing for students. Uh, I believe it's mandatory um, uh, for employees. Um, and uh, so far, out of, uh, last I checked, uh, out of over 8,000 test administrations, um, two uh, have come back uh, positive. So we have a, an extremely low uh, positivity rate. Uh, and part of that is because we're in the state of Maine in the U.S., and Maine has, uh, as a state, some of the lowest uh, positivity rates uh, in the U.S. So we're fortunate 
uh, in our uh, geography and in our resources uh, to be able to uh, reduce, uh, as I see it, reduce uh, the risk compared to, say, a less well-funded institution in a state with a very high positivity rate. And so uh, if you'll forgive me for that long preface, but I, I wonder insofar as a college or university can effectively mitigate actual risk, um, I mean, if I understand your analysis, that would seem to weaken the argument for hazard pay, but am I putting words into your mouth there? Uh, no, those words are good <laughs> for my mouth. So I'd say, yeah, um, at the point that the risk is, is lowered to the background risk, or lower, it might be you might be safer at your place of work than you are outside of your place of work. Possibly, um, at that point, uh, there wouldn't be any case for hazard pay. I don't think uh, this is, of course, based on this kind of background um, point about that we don't know where someone got their infection from. Right. Uh, if even though the risk was lower at your place of work, but somehow we knew that you contracted it from your place of work. Uh, that would kind of put things back on the table. Well, not for hazard pay, I don't think, because that's kind of this background condition to do with uncertainty and the, your stress. So, I don't, but, but that would, um, if you could show that, then that would make the case for the no-fault compensation yep. um, that you would be eligible for in that case. Um, but assuming that we cannot know exactly where someone picked up uh, an infection, and if the infection rate's the same or lower than outside, then I would say there's probably no reason for hazard pay or a no-fault compensation scheme in that case. Here, I'm, I'm just interested in comparing notes here. because So here in Oxford, we've got, and obviously it's, it's, it's wealthy, um, but, and I wonder, I was going to ask you about your student body because the hours are coming from all around the UK. You know, so there's this kind of this extra concern that uh, we're at once kind of potentially bringing in a confluence of, uh, from all these different areas, some areas, of course, with high levels of infection. Uh, and there's a reasonable level of infection here as well in, in Oxford. Uh, that seems of extra concern. You know, you get this additional layer of mixing. Um, I don't know if where you are, if you necessarily have, is it more locals from in Maine? or So o only about 10% of our student body is from Maine. Uh, we draw students from around uh, the country and indeed, um, in a typical year from around the world, uh, some students uh, from other countries were not able uh, to come back uh, because of travel restrictions, um, uh, or some students opted not to travel back. Uh, but no, uh, we're, we're, it sounds similar in that we are bringing students in from uh, many parts of the country. Um, I don't know if, I, I, I would not argue that uh, students uh, uh, come on a proportionate basis from all parts of the country equally. So I don't know if our students disproportionately come from, say, um, uh, states with lower positivity rates. Uh, but certainly some of some of our students come from states with high positivity rates. 
Uh, and so many of us, uh, myself included, despite my actually supporting the decision to invite them back to be in person, I was really concerned about what we would see in the initial uh, rounds of testing. And so it was a relief to see. And, and I'm, I'm glad that one of the two students who tested positive has recovered and has been cleared. Uh, and I, I wish the best for the one who remains in isolation housing. But um, so I don't mean this to ignore them, but I'm pleased that our positivity rate has has been as low as it has been uh, from from the from the outset. I can only hope that part of at least part of that reflects students taking seriously the um, uh, advice that they received from uh, student affairs uh, to in the weeks uh, leading up to moving back to limit their social contact and to actually get, um, uh, if they could, a COVID test at home before moving back and only coming back if that was negative. I can only hope that uh, what we're seeing now is in part a product of students taking that advice seriously, but I don't know, maybe we just got lucky. Yeah, well, 8,000 tiers, 8,000 students, did you say? Uh, well, well, 8,000 8, administrations. Uh, so with, with, twice weekly, with twice weekly uh, testing, that's more than the number of uh, actual people. I think if I, if I was trying to think back to being uh, the age of the super we're mainly you know, undergrads here, um, yeah, it would make sense. Like if, you, if, we, if we can all just behave ourselves so we don't have coronavirus when we turn up back at college, then we can kind of socialize and have fun you know, in the, in, in with the, this kind of feeling that we're, we're probably safe. Uh, don't know if they'll be thinking like that. That's uh, our one way, one way that people might have been thinking. Um, I was going to, so I, I was interested, you said, um, so you were in support of uh, the people coming back, the students coming back. Yep. Uh, and I was, so I was interested in, in that. I mean, I guess that's partly uh, on the basis of, Seems like there's relatively low risk in Maine, relatively low, uh, you know, risk of harm. Um, but I was also wondering, uh, part of this, and this connects to what we were talking about, is how much, you know, so we're thinking about the good of education, and so we're running this kind of, this is another aspect of this analogy that we haven't looked at. So that, you know, we, you, you would assume that there is a kind of good that the military can provide for society. There is obviously a good that, um, that uh, healthcare can provide for society. And yes, of course, there's a good that education provides as well. Yep. Um, but we have this interesting uh, variation that comes up with education that is, well, why can't you do it remotely? And if you could deliver the substantial part of the good of education remotely, then why are we doing this extra? Bit. Uh, and that kind of seems to have been a, uh, an interesting aspect of this problem, right? Because uh, well, I, I can I can tell you my rationale. Yeah, yeah, I do. Uh, and I want to and I want to be clear here that I'm speaking only uh, for myself um, uh, individually when I say this, but uh, my understanding uh, throughout the summer was that. Uh, at my institution, but at, at many institutions, students uh, indicated that uh, if their college or university went fully remote, many of them would simply choose to take a year off because um, for many of them in the wake of what uh, was a suboptimal remote experience in the winter, 
although much of that was because we were remote learning was foisted upon us. And so the faculty just did the best they could. And that's we've, probably we've all been learning. <laughs> we've all been learning about Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and because we've been learning, uh, it might be that students are underestimating how strong remote learning can be this this year with preparation. But be that as it may, the concern was uh, that students uh, would uh, would opt out, and with that, it would create uh, revenue uh, shortfalls. Um, or if uh, students um, participated but insisted upon uh, discounts, um, and of course, you wouldn't be in a position, obviously, to, to charge room and board if students are not uh, not remote or not in person. And um, we, like a lot of institutions. Uh, I don't know what the funding model is at Oxford, but we are heavily uh, tuition uh, dependent, uh, which means uh, tuition and or fee dependent, tuition and room and board. And so um, substantial revenue shortfalls could uh, would have been quite plausible under a fully remote scenario. And we're, we're, a, we're a not-for-profit, so it's not that I'm eager to see uh, the senior administrators line their pockets. That That's not it. It's that um, many employees could have been furloughed or laid off uh, with substantial revenue shortfalls. And so given that I saw the risks as manageable with the combination of mains, low test rate, uh, and the protocols being put in place, including and especially the frequent testing, for me, as I weighed the risks, um, which seemed relatively low, against uh, the rewards, which included uh, keeping uh, as many employees as possible employed. Uh, that's what led me to support uh, the decision to invite students back. Uh, but we faced and continue to face a lot of uncertainty. And hey, wait a minute. I'm the host. You're asking me questions. <laughs> but 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 no, seriously, I, does that make sense? Yeah, no, that makes sense. That makes sense. I mean, that's kind of, um, I wasn't actually, I mean, I was thinking, it's good to also think about the the employees, of course, yeah, like the, the overall financial viability of uh, the organization. I mean, it's really at the forefront of the decision-making when you're in a private situation. I mean, if, even if it, though it's not for profit, uh, if you have a, if you had a, if you're considering like a fully, a fully public system. Well, here then, in the, well, here in the U S even our public systems, unfortunately, because in recent decades, the legislators have reduced uh, the, um, uh, the size of the contribution from uh, the state government, they've also become more uh, fee dependent. Mm, mm, yeah. Um, well, yeah, let's not go down too far down that. Down that <laughs> yes, path. exactly. That's a, that's <laughs> another podcast episode. If, if we imagine an ideal public education system, <laughs> and I'm not saying that that's here either by any means, of course not, but um, you, and you have also like imagine some kind of ideals of democracy. Again, not that this is existing anywhere. Uh, you could now think something along the lines of, well, as a, as a population, we recognize that education is important. We recognize that educators are important. Uh, we can now kind of decide as a group. I mean, obviously, that's difficult too, but perhaps we'll take the hit. We will provide remote education only. Those students who want it can take it. Those who don't want it can, won't take it. And um, we will basically pay teachers anyway of course it's going to be very expensive or you could at least make this decision you could say you know how, how many teachers are we prepared to lose as a group uh, yeah. 
not, obviously these are difficult decisions, but ones that um, if you, under those kind of ideal circumstances, you can kind of look at taking. Uh, obviously, but in the private in the private situation, it's just like you don't have any control over those things. It's right. kind of decide for you. The people who work in so-called frontline or essential uh, jobs are uh, disproportionately uh, black and brown uh, in many uh, cases. So racial and ethnic minorities are disproportionately likely to work in those positions, at least in the U.S., where we, to put it mildly, have a history uh, of uh, discrimination against and oppression of uh, black and brown people. I wonder if you see that as reinforcing all else being equal, reinforcing the case for hazard pay. As reinforcing it, I mean, I'll, I'll say it's also it's a similar situation here in the UK as well. Um, that, that 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 reinforcing it that is to avoid yet creating yet another instance of inequity. Yes, I see what you mean. Like, yeah, so yeah, that's a it's a good line of thinking i mean it's yeah it's true that because of the prior inequity you now kind of compound uh so you might say there's also uh this additional factor of social justice that would drive greater hazard pay i so i think it does provide extra reason although i would i don't I don't find it an elegant solution because I feel like that that, that that injustice should be corrected in a different way. And I would kind of worry me a little bit that people would kind of go, like, oh, you know, paid a little bit extra hazard pay. So, you know, problem solved. And I think, yeah. And so that would kind of, that would, I just feel, I, I doubt, I doubt, I mean, obviously these injustices can never really be adequately fully compensated. And it, but, but, uh, Hazard pay would strike me as a particularly poor way of doing it, um, but if there was nothing else coming, um, something's better than nothing. Maybe I guess you might, you know, maybe one way of thinking about it. I don't know. Yeah, it, yeah. <laughs> so I don't have a, I don't have a great clear answer for you there. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Well, that, <laughs> that, uh, it's, it, admittedly, that that's that's not uh, an easy question, uh, but I, I certainly I would be particularly worried if people. Wa tried to wash their hands of the uh, more global and historical problem of uh, inequity by saying, well, we did this one thing. And, but many, I'm sure many would try to do that. But, but as we conclude, I want to shift uh, away from um, one 2020 paper of yours to another. You've been very productive. Um, so you have a new paper out about uh, duty to treat versus duty to family. Uh, among healthcare workers, can you briefly briefly talk about the core arguments of that paper? Yeah, so this so this was so this was the other part of my lockdown musings. <laughs> <laughs> so I was um, I was kind of struck by uh, I don't know if this has happened in the states, but there were some examples in Spain, and there's some some suspicion that it happened here in the UK as well. So uh, people that were working in aged care facilities just not turning up to work kind of at the height of the epidemic. 
and people just being left to die uh, in their beds. And then, and then, of course, lots of healthcare workers uh, worried about bringing the infectious infectious disease back to their families, and they, you know, they might have vulnerable people in their home environments. And with this uh, education you've talked about it as well, or, or the the, the, the um, or those stats that you had about people getting hazard pay and the concerns that people had about their families. Uh, obviously, it's a serious concern when you're working in and around infectious disease that you will be the vector that will bring it to your family. So uh, I was just interested, I was exploring under, to what extent uh, healthcare workers uh, are obliged to go into work and to fulfill their duty to treat the patient, given that they also have a duty to their family and they also have a duty to themselves. So if we kind of um, ramp up the deadliness of the infection, we might say at some point, well, even a fully trained physician is not obliged to go into that. They might, they might go into that. I mean, this is, of course, this is kind of an apocalyptic scenario. I was going to say, if, if we're at that level, we're all fucked. But anyway. But, that's, but, but uh, interesting that you, I mean, I also have the same intuition that people have got that. That's bad if even a doctor won't help. But, but I think that speaks to the fact that we, um, we really believe that doctors will help even in really dire situations. And, that, and that, that, that's connected to our idea that we believe they have a very strong duty to treat. And that's connected with what it is to be a doctor. And so I was also interested in the varying strength of duty to treat. So a physician, I would say, has a very strong duty to treat. Uh, a physician who is a specialist in infectious diseases might have an even stronger duty to treat in an infectious kind of context. Whereas an aged care worker, not even, so they'd say they're not even a trained nurse, their duty to treat is much weaker. And they're paid much less as well. And then yep. they don't have all the, and the duty to treat is connected to um, the privileges and prestige that society affords your position. And of course, you know, doctors enjoy a good amount of prestige, can often be well paid, not, not always. <laughs> the poor old aged care worker, they're at the bottom, they're at the bottom rung, you know, and their work is hard. And it's kind of one thing that this pandemic brought out. Like a lot of the worst paid workers are doing the most important jobs. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so, and anyway, so I, so I was looking at that. Well, this is interesting. Here are these people with a, a weak duty to treat. Uh, they're not, you know, they're not being well paid. They don't have much prestige. And let's imagine that they have, um, you know, that maybe they're a little bit vulnerable personally or they have vulnerable people at home and they, that they have a duty to look after. And so I was suggesting basically that in some circumstances uh, people would be permitted to not go to work um, if they were, particularly in the lower duty to treat, higher duty to family condition. That's not to say that you should just not turn up and result in a Spain, Spanish kind of aged care facility having no one working there. Of course, you should call in and say that you're not coming in and why you're not coming in. So you shouldn't be blamed for that. And then that would at least allow the facility to react in, in some way. But yeah, so I was exploring those ideas in that paper. 
Well, I uh, look forward to reading it in its entirety. Um, um, for now, uh, I'm really grateful for you joining me. This has been a lot of fun, and I look forward to when you publish uh, your next paper. You're going to be, you're going to, you're turning me into a, a fan of. Uh, well, I am a fan of your work, and you're turning me into a fan of uh, the medical ethics uh, journal in which uh, you've been publishing. Uh, but uh, I look forward to. I hope uh, having you back someday. Oh, that would be good. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Michael. That's it for Tatter. I want to thank Doug McConnell for taking the time to talk with me. For more information on McConnell or the issues we discussed, go to tatter.fireside.fm and find the page for this episode where you will see relevant links. I also want to thank that researcher whose lab I worked in that summer as an undergraduate. Even though I was not cut out for that kind of work, I still want to thank the researcher for taking a chance on this young man from a small college in Arkansas. Anyway, if you want to offer feedback on this or any other episode of Tatter, you have three options. If you are on Twitter, you can mention Tatter using the handle at Tatter underscore rags. Or you can go to Apple Podcasts and post a rating and or a review. Or to offer more private feedback, you can send an email to tatter.rags.2017 at gmail.com. If you want to offer financial support for Tatter, find Tatter at Patreon and become a patron. But note... If you are a current student at the college where I teach, you cannot become a supporter. I cannot accept your support. But for everyone else, come on in. The water's just fine. In any case, and as always, thanks for listening and be well.